what's the mission of these schools? They're not teaching the kids the fundamental skills they need to enter the workforce or really even to, to get into college and be productive. They're teaching them this radical ideology. And it's just, we, we've got to get more parents involved and just really take control of this process and put the parents back in the driver's seat. Hey, Joyful Warriors, welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. I'm really excited to be joined by a friend, uh, someone that I got to meet in D.C. Uh, at, a, at a party where he was introducing that he was running again for Congress. Uh, yes, Joe Kent is joining us today. So Joe ran in 2022 uh, for Washington's third congressional district. He lost by less than a percentage point. Uh, so it was a very, very close race. And uh, Joe is from, as I said, Washington State. So excited to learn a little bit more about Washington State. Joe, we don't have a lot of people on the podcast uh, from up your way, but we do have quite a few chapters in Washington. And you guys experienced COVID, uh, I think, in a very unique way uh, compared to many across the country. So excited to talk with you today. Welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. Really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Wonderful. Thank you. So, Joe, first of all, thank you for your service. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, yeah, served in the military for a little over uh, 20 years, did 11 combat deployments, so it was a Green Beret, uh, spent a lot of time overseas fighting our wars over there. My late wife was also uh, in the military. She was killed fighting ISIS in Syria uh, about one month after Trump tried to get our troops out the first time. So that kind of thrust me uh, into this political world because I saw what the uh, administrative state could do to just really thwart the best intentions of a president who was trying to put our country first. So I'd uh, never intended on running for Congress, but I uh, kind of found myself in this position when my uh, Republican congresswoman decided to vote for Trump's impeachment. So that kind of got me politically engaged, but also COVID, uh, the riots that we had out here in the Pacific Northwest, and then just the erosion of parental rights. Uh, I have two young sons. They're six and eight years old. I currently homeschool them uh, because the state, the state schools here in Washington have just gone so far uh, out of the bounds of anything that I ever thought I'd see in my own country. It's really perverse. It's really crazy. So, you know, fighting for the future uh, of our children, that's uh, why I'm in this fight. Well, thank you to you for your service and to your late wife, Shannon. I know that must have been incredibly difficult. And, and then as a single dad, I think I heard that you've recently uh, found love again and gotten remarried. So uh, many congratulations to you, you and your life. Uh, but there is no doubt being a single dad must have been difficult and losing your wife in that manner. So um, thank you. Uh, so you throw your hat in the ring. You decide to run for office in Washington State. Um you talk a little bit about COVID and, and what you experienced in Washington. Let's dive a little bit more into that. When I was uh, starting Moms for Liberty, when Tina and I first started, I would talk to moms in Washington State, in Oregon. I think you're originally from Oregon. Am I right? Yep. Okay. My district's right on the border. Yeah. I'm, I'm just from the right Oregon the side. Yeah. Okay. I think it was Sweet Home, Oregon. Is that true? That's a great name for <laughs> yeah. a, a, a town or a city, Sweet Home, Oregon. Yeah. That's where I was born, actually, in, in a little cabin. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. Um, but when I would talk to moms from the West Coast, but again, Washington, Oregon, they were a mess. They were so upset and it was so frustrating. It was like they had even forgotten that parental rights existed. There had been such a level of indoctrination and in the state really dictating every facet of your lives in, in Washington state that uh, moms really didn't know where to start pushing back. So talk to me a little bit about what that was like as a dad. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a really confusing time. Obviously, the the initial couple months of COVID, no one really knew what was going down on. So I think we all kind of accepted, hey, let's let's lock down, let's listen to the government. But then being able to see behind the curtain, as as so many people could uh, could because of classrooms being put on Zoom, we really saw what was being taught in the schools. My kids were, were pretty young, so we were a little bit sheltered from that. But I started talking with you know my friends and my neighbors and just seeing what the kids were being taught, how radical the ideology was, whether it was critical race theory being taught that America is systemically evil, but then really the sexual indoctrination. And this has been a burning issue here in Washington state for quite a while. We, we have what I'm sure you guys are familiar with. It's called comprehensive sex ed, which is completely radical. Uh, it doesn't resemble the, the sex ed that I was given in public public schools uh, when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, it's completely radical. It has this trans ideology just baked into it. And, and that ideology has really permeated into pretty much every aspect of education. And that's why so many parents are pulling their kids out of the schools. But we saw that during COVID. And the lockdowns here didn't really end almost until 2022. We had lockdowns up until the summer of, uh, of 21. We had mask mandates. You know, Kids were being told they had to wear masks during sporting activities. Just the utmost amount of control the government could seize away from the people. And the rules were ever-changing. And the rules only seemed to apply to one side. But really, pretty much every bit of control and transparency transparency the parents had was taken away from them. And I'm sure we'll get more into this here in a minute. But just recently, we've had this uh, bill called SB 5599 that basically allows the states to kidnap your kids away from you. If your kids believe some of this indoctrination and they say, hey, I'm confused about what my gender is and my parents don't support this, the school has an obligation to not tell the parents what the kids are telling the guidance counselors. And then the schools and the state can basically take the kids away from the parents and give them you know, so-called gender affirming care which is really just chemical castration or a mutilating surgery. So it, it is complete and total insanity out here. Even when I articulate it, I don't fully believe that it's the reality. You know, had I not lived it and had I not seen this get codified into law. But uh, that's unfortunately the sad state of parental rights in Washington state right now. So why run for Congress? Why not run for House or Senate in Washington? What, are, what skills do you think you're bringing and what are you hoping to achieve at the federal level? Because you just mentioned one of the bills that got passed in Washington. Some of these bills are horrific uh, that we're seeing, Washington, Oregon, California, and they're making their way across the country. So I'm curious uh, what your motivation is and, and what you hope to, to do once you, if you reach Congress. Well, actually, here in um, my district, we have pretty solid state reps that are fighting. They're fighting a very uphill battle. I don't envy them. They have to go to Olympia, uh, where it, that that uh, body is really controlled heavily by folks from Seattle, King County, those types of areas. So for me, it was it was finding a place where my skill set, my experience in the military, the federal government, I worked in the intelligence community for a while, uh, where my skills could best plug in. And there was a major gap with federal leadership. Uh, my time in the military, I was both an enlisted guy, but I was also a warrant officer. So being able to bridge that gap between management and leadership is something that I specialized in overseas at war. And I think that ties in nicely with what the role of a congressman is, which is really to bridge the gap and be the closest touch point that citizens have with Washington, D.C. And a big issue we have here in, in blue states is that we basically have nobody fighting for us. And at the federal level, I think there's some key things that could be done to enshrine parental rights, tie the federal funding, the federal education money to ensure 
sure that parents actually have transparency. That's something that this last Republican Congress has attempted to do with the Parental Bill of Rights. My opponent and every single Democrat voted against basic transparency for the parents. And then also codifying into law that biological men cannot go into women's locker rooms, women's bathrooms, compete against them in athletics. I think that's something we could do from the federal level. Again, my opponent and every Democrat voted against that in this last Congress. So I think there's there's lots of things we can do from the federal level, but I'm, I'm in this fight because I think my skills in the, in the uh, on the federal side really tie nicely into being able to fight for the people in the district in Washington, D.C. Wonderful. So I'll be honest with you. I wasn't a huge fan of H.R. 5, the Parents' Bill of Rights. I think it's important for us to find, um, you know, the proper role of the federal government when we're talking about education, right? So give us a, a bit of a sense, you know, you're, you're hoping to head to Washington. Um, what, how is education going in, in, in Washington State, uh, where, where you're located? How are the kids doing in school? They're doing terribly. I mean, we have some of the worst test scores uh, in the entire country right now. And, and that's because what's being prioritized is this radical ideology. It's because of the gaps that developed during COVID. Uh, and so right now, unfortunately, there's some really good teachers out there, I think, that are fighting hard and they're trying to do the right things by the students. But the administrative uh, control of our education system is just working against education. So look, from, from the federal perspective, I don't think the federal government has any role in, you know, in, in telling the states how to handle their business with education. However, if we're going, if we can't completely and totally abolish the federal department of education, which I would like to do, but if we can't do that, I want to be able to weaponize and use the federal education grants to strip out every single bit of this radical ideology and to give the parents some basic transparency. Uh, I understand if I was in a red state, I would feel the exact same way. I would say, hey, just keep the federal government out of it 110% uh, for where we're at right now. I want to be able to use every bit of uh, power that we have at the federal level to give parents transparency and really just to expose and to starve the beast. The more that we can get our kids to, to get out of the schools, I homeschool my kids. We're very blessed and lucky that we can do that. I know every parent can't. This is why I think pushing uh, some form of school choice would be a great idea. It should come from the governors, but for folks like us that are here in a blue state, our, our governors are not going to cooperate. They're not going to go along with that. So I would like there to be some form of a federal voucher system, uh, tax deduction, some way that we can start getting parents to pull their kids out of the education system just to starve the beast and give parents more control. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And you know, we say that parents have the fundamental right to direct the education of their children, their upbringing, but their education, their medical care, their morality, their religion. And there's so much overreach happening right now by the federal government into the state education systems through the grant programs. You're absolutely right. So that's a great way to, to go forward so that you know, um, there are laws that are currently uh, in the books, uh, federal laws like the Protection of People Rights Amendment uh, that say that a lot of this stuff shouldn't be happening, that there needs to be transparency uh, in the classroom for parents, that there shouldn't be any surveys given uh, to students regarding political affiliation or religious beliefs. But you and I both know, and I mean, certainly in Washington state, this is happening all over the place, isn't it? It most certainly is. Look, the, the administrators that are running these schools, the vast majority of them, I, I think, are pretty dedicated leftists, at least here in Washington state. Uh, and then the other ones are just afraid of losing their jobs. They want to keep their pensions. They don't want to make any ripples. And so basically, whatever the administration puts out, they amplify, whether that's the trans ideology that confuses our children, whether it's CRT, whatever the case is, and just making everything very much highly politicized. I did a few events uh, in the lead up to last election at local high schools and in the 
libraries. And I was just astonished just walking around, looking at some of the books, but also just looking at the, the posters that are just talking about, you know, trans rights, gay rights. I mean, they're making it to be this very cool thing to be trans or to be homosexual or whatever. Um, and most of this is happening, I think, without parents' knowledge. If they're not actually physically going into the schools and observing the curriculum, you know, they're just simply not aware of this because people are busy. And I understand that. But at the same time, it's like, what's the what's the mission of these schools? They're not teaching the kids the fundamental skills they need to enter the workforce or really even to, to get into college and be productive. They're teaching them this radical ideology. And it's just we, we've got to get more parents involved and just really take control of this process and put the parents back in the driver's seat. So let's dive into a little bit your military background and how that informs your perspective. So you go into a library, you're going into a school and you're seeing pride flags all over the place. And I want to be clear, again, I say this every uh, podcast I do where we discuss this, we've got gay members, we've got members with gay kids. This isn't about sexual orientation. My children do not need a sexual spirit guide at school. I believe that. Uh, that They need to learn how to read, write, do math, right? But they don't need someone guiding them on their sexual orientation journey. Um, but what does it mean to you as a veteran, when you walk into schools and you're seeing these other flags being flown and, and maybe not even the American flag? Yeah, you know, I was I was a Green Beret, so unconventional warfare is, is something I specialized in. And and walking into a school and seeing the flags of other countries, seeing these essentially these made up flags. I mean, the pride flag gets a new symbol or a new color added to it. I, th I think every June they they unveil the new pride flag that has another group uh, that's that's included in it. But seeing this, it, to me, it, it's very clear indoctrination. Yes, the trans ideology and and the gay agenda that's pretty unique to the United States. However, if you just look at the basic methodology, this is the exact same thing that's done the world over the cultural revolution that we saw in China, the way that Mao really sought to break up the nuclear family and to take control of the children. And you hear Biden use a lot of this, this language. He says there are kids. You know, it's, it's very uh, nefarious when you really look at the underpinnings and what they're trying to do. And for me, it all goes back to control. They're trying to take away the things that unite us, which is what our national flag does. Or the American flag unites us regardless of your sexual orientation, your skin color, any of that. It says, hey, we're all Americans. You're here at an American public school, and this is what unites us. Having all these different subgroups is, is done you know, very deliberately. It's done to confuse kids. It's done to break up the nuclear family, and it's done to pit people against each other. It's really about division, and it's really about giving the people that control the system, this managerial class, giving them control. So I, I see it as you know, very sophisticated, unconventional warfare and psychological warfare that's being waged on the American people. And the critical terrain, the hill that they want to take, so to speak, is our children to break up the nuclear family. And we saw that in the Black Lives Matters uh, tenants when they first came out, a destruction of the nuclear family was one of the things that they were focused on doing. And so um, I think it's important for people to understand. So you just talked a little bit about unconventional warfare. I wonder if you could dive a little bit more into that, what you've seen or give us some examples in history. You just mentioned a few examples, but I think it's important, first of all, maybe talk about what it means to be a Green Beret, right? For people that may not be familiar of, with what that means, what your role is within the U.S. Army Special Forces. Um, and then again, you know, I think it's I think we're coming to a point in America where American parents are saying, like, wait a second, why is this happening? This is so antithetical to our belief system. It's so subversive. Right. Um, they, they don't, they're not trying to change our minds, but they certainly are trying to capture the children. And so what is that? You know, let's talk a little bit about, more about that and, and maybe some things that we can do to push back against it. 
Yeah, so uh, Green Berets, we, we're the guys that go behind enemy lines. And yeah, we can do all the, the traditional, you know, kicking the doors and go after the bad guys types of missions. But our hallmark, what makes us unique within special operations is that we go in and we recruit and we train local forces, indigenous forces to work against terrorist organizations, or in some cases, to even overthrow governments. So this is where I kind of put on my, my Green Beret hat when I'm walking through schools and I see these pride flags and I start looking at the curriculum because we don't always go in, you know, kicking in doors and shooting and parachuting in and all that stuff. There's a lot of countries that we work in where we're working on the information warfare, we're working on the psychological warfare, and we are attempting to persuade people of our ideology to break them away from whatever held them together. Now, usually we're doing this against Al-Qaeda, against ISIS, you know, against the Chinese Communist Party, against very radical ideologies. Uh, but right now we're seeing that playbook being ran against us. And this isn't, like I said, this is nothing new. Uh, radical Islamic extremists have been using this for quite some time. They use religion as their cudgel. But then also, if you look at the Cultural Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, I think, is really key to study because one of the first things that the Maoists did was they tried to break up the nuclear family. They tried to give, they tried to make basically every kid an informant against their parents. And then they would have these struggle sessions where people have to say, like, you know, I've I've spoken ill against the communist, uh, the, our communist leaders who are just trying to do the right thing for the, the great people of China. Uh, we're seeing the same thing play out here in America where the parents are being pitted or the kids are being pitted against the parents. And now the kids, especially in Washington state with 5599, the kids can now go to the school administrators and say, look, my parents, they don't believe what you guys have taught me. They don't believe this ideology and they're not affirming my gender. And they're able to completely and totally cut the parents out. So I, I think we we fight back, number one, by participating in local elections. We just had a local election you know, two days ago where unfortunately our participation in Washington state for eligible voters, it was under 20%. And these were really key fights. We actually here at the local level, we got some really solid people elected to city council and to our school board. So we had some really small victories, but I think we could have had many, many more if we could have driven out voter participation much more. And then parents got to get involved. I know homeschooling is very challenging, especially in this economy where both parents basically have to work just to keep their heads above water. Um, but if there's any way that people can do that to get their kids out of the school system, it's not as hard as, as you think. Our church has a co-op. We do the classical conversations methodology, but there's so many different, different kinds of co-ops that are out there. Some are religious, some are not. But really what that does, is that gives the parents much more control. And it's challenging here uh, in Washington state. We don't have school choice like we should. So I think fighting for candidates that are going to fight for school choice to get rid of a lot of the funding systems that are going uh, to fund and fuel this ideology, I think that's critical. But really people got to get active. I go to school board meetings all the time. And uh, a lot of times there's no one there. There's really just the left there driving their ideology. And it's not overt. It, it's them really just having this subtle control and they make it all seem very normal. But the second parents start showing up and say, hey, what are you putting in my, my kid's library? What is this book? Let me read this book out loud. We've all seen those videos on YouTube, but it's really powerful when you actually go and you watch this happen. We've got a great local school district here, uh, La Center, very small town, but this, the, uh, the superintendent, the school board basically said that they would not comply with 5599, that, that if a kid comes to them, their first phone call is to the parent. Antifa and a bunch of other groups came and, tr and tried to, to raise hell at their school board meetings. We had a bunch of patriots go and show and show their support that we actually have this, these uh, these leaders backs. And it, it, it's been great to see the, the community really show up and get engaged and participate. And that's that's what we need. We need people to participate.
No, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree. So you've got a lot of parents uh, with younger children right now watching what's happening in the world. Um, so given your military background, how do you think that informs your approach to uh, national security and foreign policy? A lot of questions about the state of unrest that we're seeing uh, in many different countries and the role that America's playing in that. Most certainly. I mean, look, I, I spent most of my adult life overseas fighting in our nation's wars. And unfortunately, I'd like to tell you that we accomplished our mission and it was all worth it. But at the end of the day, we got to realize that we spent somewhere between eight and seven trillion dollars on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, lost nearly 7000 Americans. And the country is not better off because of it. We were lied to. The only people who gained anything from those wars were military defense contractors in Washington, D.C. And now we have a situation where we have leaders in charge like Joe Biden, like the Democrat Party that have left our border wide open. We've got fentanyl pouring across the border, killed over 108,000 Americans. My, my state, Washington state, is leading the nation right now in fentanyl deaths. So we have this very bizarre approach to national security right now, where we're told that we have to care deeply about what's happening in countries thousands of miles away, but it's wrong for us to demand our own border to be secured. And I think we've got to call that out for what it is. It's absolutely destroying us. And we've got to say, look, our, our only duty is really to protect and to provide for our people. Let's finally, once and for all, put our citizens first. That doesn't mean we can't support allies like we have in Israel, but there's ways to do it that we don't get deeper, engage, more deeply engaged in, the, in these conflicts. And really, at the end of the day, our obligation is to secure our border and have basic law and order so that we can live in peace and prosperity here in America. So how will you ensure that voters' voices in Washington state are heard in Washington, D.C.? Because sometimes it feels like the farther away you are from Washington, D.C., the less input that you get to have as a voter in some of these different things that are happening, right? You feel a little disconnected. And so how will you work to ensure that? You know, a, a big thing is really understanding that your elected official, your your representative, that's your conduit to the federal government. So I think it's incumbent for those representatives to aggressively and loudly represent the interests of, the, of their people, their constituents in Washington, D.C. They can't just go along to get along. In my first race, I took down a 12-year incumbent from the Republican Party, uh, and now I'm going against an incumbent from the Democrat Party. So when I get to Washington, D.C., I will have defeated two incumbents, one from each party. I will not be beholden to anyone. So a lot of times people, when they start running for office, the party will come in very early and back them and back them with a lot of money. And then once you're back with a lot of money, then you owe favors. And then you're not actually pursuing the agenda of the people in your district. I run off of small dollar donations. I don't take any money from any of the, the corporate super PACs or any of that type of stuff. Uh, so really for me, it's all about accountability. And I won my, my initial primary by doing about 350 in-person town halls over the course of 18 months uh, and knocking on, my, my team and I knocked on over 130,000 doors. So constant engagement with the people, I think is absolutely critical. Uh, it's really incumbent to have our elected officials come back and do town halls where they're not scripted, where anybody can just come and raise an issue and discuss what's happening in Washington, D.C. so that there's actual accountability there. I think that's key. That's one of my, my number one promises to the people in the district is that I'll always come back and do in-person town halls. You don't have to write down the question ahead of time. Uh, it's not pre-screened by my staff. You can just come and, and tell me what's on your mind or ask me a question. I think that the accountability and the transparency is key. So you're walking into Washington now. Let's say you've been elected. There's been a little bit of a shakeup in the House of Representatives. I'm going to tell you from, from what I've seen on the ground with Americans, they like the disruption. 
I think that there's a, a certain amount of this foregone conclusion that we've seen in politics and certainly within the Republican Party. I know when I ran for office, um, the Democrats didn't like me. The Republicans didn't like me. They had already chosen a different candidate. And so um, I won with 60 percent of the vote. But, you know, I wasn't really being backed by any type of, of political party and, and, and apparatus in my district um, and, and my community. People are ready to stop asking permission, I think, right? Um, so what has your take been watching the, the speaker's race? You know, the first one with Kevin McCarthy, 15 rounds, and then this, you know, last move by Matt Gates to, to you know, remove McCarthy. And now we have uh, Speaker Mike Johnson. I testified before his committee um, in the judiciary. So what, what have your thoughts been about everything that's been happening? I'm really excited that we have Speaker Johnson in there. I think he's got a fantastic track record. He Again, he's not beholden to anyone either. Um, so I'm really excited that he's there. I, I agree with you. I think that the the shakeup and the violation of the status quo is a good thing. Because look, if the status quo was working, we wouldn't be in this position right now. We wouldn't be $33, $34 trillion in debt. Our border wouldn't be wide open. There wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be on the verge of World War III. Uh, but that's just not the case. The current system is not working. And so when you get people who actually have the courage to say, look, I, I present an alternative idea, I think the American people are really, really responding well to that. I think they're really embracing that because they understand, even if you don't follow politics that much, you understand at a very basic gut level that things are not right right now. So this is the time for us to take drastic and bold action. So I couldn't be more excited. I think Speaker Johnson's off to a good start. I mean, they've got a couple uh, very hard fights coming up here. I appreciate the fact that he is not putting us further in debt. He found a way to give Israel the funding they needed, but he took that money away from the bloated and weaponized IRS. That to me right there is the template. He didn't say, hey, let's go further in debt. He said, look, if we have to support an ally, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to find a way to pay for it, just like we all have to with our businesses, with our families. The fact that they're actually doing individual appropriations bills, I think a lot a lot of the noise gets uh, really confusing out there for people who don't follow the details. You hear that Matt Gates and these guys are coming in, the Freedom Caucus, they're coming in, they're just creating chaos. Well, the chaos was them saying that, hey, we shouldn't do these massive 5,000 page omnibus bills, we should actually do individual appropriations bills and we should live within our means. That's probably about the most moderate common sense thing I've ever heard. And so to watch the mainstream media then turn and attack them, you see where the moneyed interests are. The moneyed interests are with the status quo because that's how they're all getting paid. That's the corruption that's destroying our country. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with uh, the way things are right now. I hope Mike Johnson stays the course. I think he will. So, so far, so good. It's, it's going to be a hard fight going into 24. It's going to be a hard fight this next month as they negotiate the budget. Absolutely. And, and you're right. I mean, from what I've seen uh, serving in elected office, if, if the protectors of the status quo never like change and they want to try to pit you as some type of, of, of chaos agent, right? Oh, everything's falling apart. Um, there was a, a we did a, an interview recently and, and the reporter was asking about um, a school district that had to go through a review process of like 90 books or something and said, you know, they're not able to do anything else. They're, you know, they have to do these book reviews. And I was like, come on now. Like, you know, school districts can can walk and chew gum at the same time. The idea that, you know, having to go through a certain process is going to keep them from doing all of their other work is just ridiculous. But that is the narrative that's being sown. And so tell us a little bit about what your race was like uh, last time and what the media, how the media handled that, how you feel like you were portrayed in Washington state. Um, and then 
what you hope for the future. I mean, I, w- I want you to be able to speak to the voters of your district and tell them, like, you know, why should they vote for you, right? Why should you represent them in Congress? Yeah, certainly. Last cycle was was very challenging. We had a uh, really hotly contested primary, so I ran against a 12-year incumbent in the primary. But we have uh, open primaries, jungle primaries here. So we actually had about four really strong Republicans on the ballot. And look, it was a bloodletting. Uh, it was a very hard-fought primary. When I emerged as the uh, Republican nominee in August, we had a very fractured Republican party. Our primaries are late. So our, our primary is in August. It takes us two weeks to count ballots here in Washington state, which is a whole different topic. So our election really wasn't sorted out until mid-August. We do all mail-out ballots here. So the uh, ballots for the general election got dropped about five and a half weeks later. So unfortunately, I didn't have the time to go out and unify the Republican Party, despite my, my best efforts. I also had 14 million spent against me in the primary. A lot of that was, almost all of that was fratricide coming from the Republican side. So I was fresh out of money once I was the Republican nominee. And then unfortunately, Republicans at the national level, they had some bad polling, some bad information. They came to me and they said, hey, you won the primary. It's a Republican district. You're going to win by five or six points. We're not going to give you any cash. The Democrats who have horrible ideas, but they have really flawless political execution, they sat back. They watched the Republican bloodletting. They consolidated with no primary around one candidate. And so on day one of the general election, she was sitting on $6 million, a uh, army of reporters from the New York Times and the Washington Post and all that. So they dropped another $6 million against me. Despite all that, we only lost by less than a percentage point. So I was basically portrayed as uh, if you were a Republican voter, they told you that I was a secret Bernie Sanders uh, socialist from Portland. If you were a Democrat, Democrat or a more independent voter, they told you that I was an extreme, you know, Nazi, Republican, everything that we all get called on a daily basis here. But despite all that, we only lost by less than a percentage point. So I think unifying the Republican Party, because at the end of the day, my, my opponent, she's a freshman, so she didn't have a record. She ran as a moderate. She basically said that she was going to be this, you know, extremely independent woman uh, representing both Republicans and Democrats. But the second she got to Congress, she's voting every single day with Nancy Pelosi and AOC. I mean, on every single key issue, whether it's the economy, the border, crime, law and order, protection of our kids, she's voted in lockstep with the radical Democrats. So what I say to folks, and I talk to Democrats and independents all the time, I challenge them. I say, look, show me the the elected Democrat at the state level, at the federal level, basically any level, the elected Democrat that stands for basic fiscal responsibility, energy independence, that understands we can't continue spending money into oblivion, that wants to secure our border, that stands for law and order, and is against the sexualization of our children. Just show me the one, one Democrat and you can't do it. And so then I say, look, this is th- those are the issues that I stand for. And I don't believe that that's like a hardcore conservative Republican ide- ideology. It's just basic common sense. I mean, if, we, if you would have said these things 10, 15 years ago, people would be like, yeah, what have we been talking about? They, they would agree with you. But the Democrats have gone so far to the, I don't even know if it's the left. They've just gone so radical that they don't represent, I, I don't think they represent any Americans anymore. They don't represent any common sense Americans anymore. So that's my appeal to the people of the district. Let's unify. Let's actually get someone in there that's going to go fight for our values because things are not right right now. And everyone knows that. And we, we've got a unique opportunity right now, pretty much at every level to turn around, turn the direction around of, of the country and, and make this a, a great place for our kids to grow up. Cause that's, what this is all about. This is all about uh, the future for our children. Absolutely. So it was so nice to talk with you today, Joe. Can you tell uh, the listeners if they want to learn more about you, what you stand for, how they can help you? Where should they? Yeah, go? please go to JoeKentForCongress.com. Uh, anything that you can donate is greatly appreciated. Five, ten, fifteen dollars. I run off of all small individual donations. So JoeKentForCongress.com. There's links on there too to to all my social media. So thank you so much for having me on today. 
Oh, it was such a pleasure. Uh, so happy that we met. Really happy to have you on. And uh, we will be following your race. We wish you and your family all the luck. Thank you so much. Have.